Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. You're listening to the Fish Untamed Podcast, your home for fly fishing the backcountry. This is episode 98 with Joe Davies on fly fishing for smallmouth bass. I always start by getting a background on my guests' Uh, usually fishing history, but I know we just talked off air uh, a little bit about how we're going to go a little bit farther back for you. Um, so I want to hear how you got started in your career. Uh, it Based on what you put in your document, uh, it sounds like you started as a fashion designer, and then we've, we're going to go from there. So why don't we start with that, and then we'll get to the fishing later on and then kind of carry on from there. Well, even before um, I got into fashion, um, I was a professional skier at a very young age. Um, I was about 13. Um, and this was years and years ago when doing, you know, a backflip at a young age was a big deal. And, um, one of, uh, you know, I, I generated a certain notoriety because of that and was going to regional competitions and then national competitions. And then by the time I was, 15, I was put on the U.S. Uh, development team and um, skied competitively on the World Cup level and unfortunately got injured right before uh, the Olympics, uh, which is something that certainly happens. It was uh, kind of a traumatic brain injury that pushed me out of it. And I always knew that school was quite important to me. Um, so wanted to go to school. Um took a bit of a uh, probably eight-month hiatus and traveled Europe and literally wrote my dad a postcard from the beach that said, I'll be back in September, pick a school out for me. You know, <laughs> I don't have time for this. And uh, um, 
so uh, decided to go to Marquette University and um, from there uh, met met the uh, young lady that would become uh, my wife at the, uh, at the time. And we moved to New Zealand for seven years. Wow. Um, so you're already off to a, an exciting <laughs> start. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And um, one of the things I found so difficult living in New Zealand was finding a job. I mean, I remember collecting all 127 rejection letters from employers saying, you know, you have no New Zealand experience and I really had to think to myself, you know, what are the marketable skills that you have? And my mom taught me to sew when we were young um, and I can create a pattern and I was into art. Um, so I ended up getting a, a grant to start my own business in New Zealand um, called Involved. And it was kind of a streetwear fashion company predicated on my stencil art. Um, so that lasted for, uh, for quite some time. And, uh, but really, it was a lot of fun, but it, <clears throat> it's tough to pay the bills in that industry uh, big time. And particularly when you're a small company. And eventually that kind of um, faded away and I went to med school for a while, uh, dropped out of that and ended up getting into pharmaceutical and medical device sales. And kind of ironically, it was through medical device sales that I learned to fly fish. I had fished a little bit in New Zealand because I was a surfer. And this was, the, you know, before the days of webcams when you just you know, click, 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 and you see the waves. You know, they're good or they're bad, but you would drive two hours out to beaches, and if there were no waves or it was blown out, you would go and fish for a few hours. And um, one of the surgeons that I worked with um, recognized that I was, uh, you know, into a lot of things, and he was kind of like, you know, New Zealand's got some some pretty pretty proper fly fishing here, you ought to give it a rip. And I said, sweet, I'm in. And uh, yeah, I suppose it was just one of those things that kept growing and growing and becoming more and more of my interest. So I have to ask, where did you grow up that you were um, into both skiing and surfing? <laughs> um, Wisconsin. <laughs> okay. So, so how does that happen? <laughs> that happened. I mean, uh, literally, uh, we, uh, I, I think by the time I was, you know, 12 or 13, I was banned from most of the ski areas for doing flips. They didn't have sophisticated enough insurance and they were referred to as snowboard parks because skiers weren't even allowed in them. And, uh, so I would go in there and, you know, kind of hot dog around and get kicked out. And we finally built a 60 foot kicker in my backyard that we towed each other in on snowmobiles with because Wisconsin being notoriously flat, um, had no other way of generating speed. And my, uh, my logic behind that was definitely one of, if I, if I can do these jumps on a very, very sketchy, unsophisticated backyard jump, 
a proper sight was never going to scare me. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah, because they. I assume that. Um. I mean, I don't. I don't know a lot about the actual building of the big parks at the resorts, but there's a lot of planning that goes into. Uh, the jumps, how they're angled, where the landing's going to be positioned and all that, right? So I assume that your jump is kind of just like haphazard, make it and hope that it goes well. Yeah, I did my, be- <laughs> I did my best research at age 15 um, <laughs> to do the math and it panned out. Um, but having said that, yeah, it was a bit of a leap of faith, so to speak. Now, at what point did you uh, fit in being the coach of the ski team? Because that's, I feel like we overlooked this. You were in med school and <laughs> surfing and all these other things. Where did you squeeze this in in your free time? Yeah, um, I, uh, about uh, my, uh, she's my ex-wife now. Um, we had separated and about three days later, I get a call from the U.S. Um, from an old athlete and friend of mine saying, you know, uh, we really could could use a coach like you with this technical breadth of knowledge um, on our staff. And I was like, well, your timing's pretty good. Um, <laughs> happen to be coming back. <laughs> um, so I uh, very quickly started in development um, uh, coaching athletes uh, just under the level of the U.S. ski team. Okay. And in about four and a half months, um, all of them made the team, so worked myself out of a job, so to speak, and that was definitely noticed. And um, yeah, ended up getting you know a call like in an airport going to San Diego to go surfing. Um, that like, hey, you got a job, and yeah, so yeah, it was it was just kind of you know kind of happenstance that it happened, and loved it, yeah. So this happened while you were, you got this first call when you were in New Zealand, still working in fashion, uh, and then came back to to do this. And then um, you said that you had, you'd started fishing while you were in New Zealand then, right? That's right. Yeah. I, um, I, you know, I had a mild interest in it, you know, it was something that I did instead of surfing, you know, if the waves were bad, but um, I, yeah. I mean, I can envision exactly where I was when it happened. I caught my first uh, brown trout on a fly rod and everything else was just like, oh, yeah, there's there's no other type of fishing other than this way. <laughs> this is what I love. You know, it, it made sense to me. I, I, I mean, um, honestly, I don't think I could take a, uh, you know, a conventional rod and reel and cast it without hooking myself in the ear or, you know creating a bird's nest. Whereas fly fishing, I guess just the way it was introduced to me in New Zealand, it, it immediately made sense to me. Man, talk about starting in a place that, uh, nowhere else to go up from there though. Like, (laughs) Oh yeah. Most people start like a farm pond. For sure. (laughs) You know, I, I don't, but I really don't have the stories of like going up there and really beating up on the water and having, you know, all this success. You know, I remember, I mean, probably the most, uh, the thing I remember most is going on a 13 day skunk. And I mean, like proper days, um, you know, you're out there six, eight hours and not catching anything. Um, but it, it gave me a certain amount of determination. Um, and then on the 14th day, I caught a couple of fish and started putting some things together. And, um, as it happened, uh, 
moved uh, immediately to Sun Valley, Idaho, where they have quite quite a good trout population, and then stayed in Park City for um, about ten years. Okay, and I assume this is from from skiing, like that's why you're going to Sun Valley and then to Park City. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, you can only really ski in the winter. And I, I needed to find something that I enjoyed during the summer. And, you know, albeit I really enjoy mountain biking and skateboarding and a lot of other things. Um, I was quickly recognizing fly fishing as something that you could do for your entire life. You know, I remember speaking with, you know, a gentleman who was well into his 70s and he hadn't missed a tarpon season in 25 years. And I'm like, yep, this is this this will work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there is something really appealing about that. Not that you can't, for example, ski, you know, late into your life, but you're the quality of it in terms of if, if you really like, you know, doing backflips, like you're not going to be doing that when you're 80. And fly fishing has a very, I feel like slow decline as you age like yeah you might not be able to hike as far back in or you know raft something crazy but at the end of the day you can still wade um like most rivers that people are wading uh basically until you can't walk anymore Um, that's right which is uh, like a really appealing thing about it where it's like i don't have to worry about giving this up at some point in my life that's right and that's um and i think just from the brief introduction i gave it, it kind of exemplifies the fact I've always followed my passions. And um, after moving back to Wisconsin, um, after finishing up my skiing, like kind of coaching career, I took about a year off um, just to kind of work on myself and um, really kind of consequently got to know our local waterways really well because I was out there on them and every day, every condition, low water, high water, you know, um, I got to see it all. And uh, because I had a certain amount of experience, I was able to not only adapt to a new species, um, which was smallmouth bass and pike and carp, um, but was able to have success and not go on a 13-day skunk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's the like, kind of par for the uh, course in New Zealand, though. Like you, I think the, the reputation it has is that it's, it's really tough, but you know, there's mm-hmm. big risk, big reward kind of thing. Um, whereas I feel like most of the U.S. is kind of the opposite. Like there's, there's not a lot of places that you can catch the same caliber of fish as you can in New Zealand, but it's very rare to go 13 days without catching something if you go out. That's right. Yeah. And and I think that was the initial appeal was that, you know, you were able to go out and have success virtually year round out in Park City and um, really started enjoying it. And as we uh, traveled with the U.S. ski team, I would bring, you know, my fly tying vice and my rod with me everywhere we went. So got to experience, you know, seeing the world with a fly rod in your hand. Mm hmm. So tell me uh, how you've gotten from there to where you are now, because I, I saw in your email that you've recently taken over um, a fly fishing company, uh, and I'd love to hear like you know how how'd you go from trout uh, in New Zealand and out west to kind of focusing on these warm water species and really you know honing your craft. Absolutely, um, and again, I think it was you know kind of just a coincidence that our trout water in Wisconsin 
um, from where we're located in the south um, eastern portion of the state. Um, all the good trout fishing is really in the southwest portion, which is about three hours away. And um, even though Wisconsin actually has more uh, trout water uh, than the state of Colorado, um, which most people find it tough to believe, uh, the Driftless region is fabulous, but it it was it seemed like a long walk for a ham sandwich, um, so to speak. It, it, you know, you really had to go out there for multiple days, and I did, and it was a lot of fun. Um, but just ten minutes from the house was the Milwaukee River, and a very good section of the Milwaukee <laughs> River. And um, yeah, I, I think the first time I went out. Um, ended up catching like an 18 inch bass and I was like, oh wow, no, these are really interesting fish and it's a really dynamic way that you fish for them. And I also kind of noticed that not only does Milwaukee have very few fly shops, they have even fewer um, guide services for fly fishermen. So I kind of slowly started guiding and teaching um, over the course of about two and a half years and then really was starting to take it on and was going to go out on my own. Unfortunately, uh, kind of coincided with when COVID hit. And I remember losing every client in three days. Um, oh, man. And, uh, I mean, had a calendar booked and lost everybody in three days and, you know, said, well, this is something that's going to have to be put on hold for a while. Um, ended up doing my own thing. And there was another gentleman, Pete Nikolov, who uh, is kind of a business partner of mine. Um, we were both guiding the same piece of water, doing it independently but we're really good friends and all of a sudden, you know, I'm sending a business I couldn't take. He was sending me a lot of business that, that he couldn't take. And it just made sense for us to team up. So that's what we did last year. And then after a bit of a conversation, I became the sole proprietor of uh, Milwaukee river fly fishing. Oh, that's awesome. And you said that was like pretty recent. Yeah. Uh, Two days ago. Yeah. Okay. It's a real reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's awesome. I'm uh, glad to hear that you've kind of quote unquote made it. You know, it sounds like that's kind of the the pinnacle. I feel like we're kind of past COVID at this point, and not not truly past COVID, but past COVID in the way that people are um, behaving. At least, you know, they're they're back out on the water. Things are moving again. So um, that's really exciting for you. Yeah, it, it is. And again, it, it's something very akin to coaching. Um, because, uh, I remember, um, one of the guides I really look up to Kobe Crossland made a comment to me that, you know, if an angler steps off your boat and they're not better at their craft, you made a mistake. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's really the value add that we, you know, at Milwaukee river fly fishing, um, try to do, we want everybody to take away something and go, you know what, next time I'm on the river, I'm going to try this, or I'm going to be working on, you know, my double haul or whatever it may be. 
Um, I, I think that the educational component, I mean, the easy part's putting somebody on fish, you know, that, that, that's not that hard. Um, but kind of doing it in a particular way, um, takes, takes quite a bit of skill. And oftentimes there's an acquisition period, you know, we ought, I mean, uh, oftentimes even with experienced anglers, we'll, right off the boat launch, there's a nice little eddy and I'll just have them make casts in that eddy and see where my range is and where I've got to position that boat all day. Um, and you know, um, too close and you're spooking fish and you won't have success. Um, so you've got to be able to kind of make that 40 to 50 foot accurate cast, um, to all the nooks and crannies on the bank where these, these, uh, you know, ostensibly apex predators live. Yeah, I think that's one of the great things about fishing and, and really any hobby that people get really deep into is is the fact that you never really stop learning. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. you learn a lot more at the beginning. You're like soaking up so much information. At some point, you start to kind of plateau. But even if it's just that one little thing that you pick up when you're out or even I listen to a lot of uh, like fishing podcasts and Sometimes I listen to a whole episode and pick out one little thing that I want to try next time I go out. And that one little thing might make a difference for me. Um, and at some point you get to those the, that place where you are listening for those little nuggets, but um, especially with a guide, like those little things that you tweak, maybe just a little positioning in your cast or putting the fly just slightly differently positioned with the fish. Um, those little things can make a lot of difference, especially when they add up. Uh, no, I couldn't agree more. And um, I certainly have a particular style. Um, uh, on that river in particular and the sections that we fish because every time you go out, you have, I mean, we kind of consider a trophy smallmouth to be 20 to 20 plus inches. Um, and there, there's, if you do it right, there's opportunity on every trip to walk away with a trophy fish. And that's, you know, obviously you mitigate, um, expectations. And if somebody says, you know, Hey, I want to go out and catch 20 small guys. Well, that, yeah, well, let's go do that. You know, you, you fish water, different water a little bit differently. Um, but yeah, there's, there's nothing more exciting as a guide than a sm- 20 inch smallmouth that all of a sudden just bulldogs you into current and, you know, takes an eight weight and bends it in half. I mean, I think pound for pound, uh, a smallmouth is one of just the toughest fighting fish um, out there. I would agree. I know a lot of people say that about a lot of different species, but in particular, I, I hear about carp a lot too. Carp, um, yep. But smallmouths in particular come to mind for me when I think of fish that you feel like you've got a monster on the line and it turns out to be 10 inches long just because oh, yeah. they just pull so hard. <sighs> They really do. And they know, and they're smart fish. Uh, they're not always the brightest things when it comes to grabbing a fly, but once they do, <laughs> you know, they're, they're trying to bury under logs and rocks and break you off and use the current. And yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, I just think as far as freshwater is concerned, you know, bass and pike are definitely two of my favorite. And, I have an obsession with carp, but yeah, don't get to do it as much as, uh, 
I'd like, and that'll be something we probably expand into in the coming future. So this might be a good time to kind of dive into smallmouth um, as a species, because that's what we're uh, mostly yeah. talking about today. So I always, for all the species-specific episodes, I really like to start with kind of like an overview of the smallmouth bass, like kind of as a, a profile about the fish. Um, so tell me tell me about the fish itself. Like you already kind of got into how it behaves, but um, just kind of talk about smallmouth behavior, their diet, where they like to hang out, just kind of like apart from the fishing, just like what are smallmouth bass like for someone who maybe has never um, caught one or experienced one before? Well, absolutely. Um, uh, particularly on the... Uh, Milwaukee River, where we do all our guiding and I do most of my personal fishing, um, there's really three sets of species that they do eat. Um, they, they eat bait fish, you know, um, they eat sculpin, and they eat crayfish. These are so um, abundant in this water system that you're using flies that that mimic those um, particular species that they're into feeding on. And obviously top water is a lot of fun as well because frogs are big sources of protein that don't bite back, (laughs) (laughs) you know? Um, But having said that, they, they are apex predators. Um, They're ambush predators, you know, oftentimes they, hide themselves best they can to conserve energy as well as kind of let food come to them. So having said that, yeah, a lot of what we do is very casting intensive um, in the sense that I think a lot of my clients would begrudgingly never want to hear, all right, I need another foot, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like almost there, but like, it's got to be on that rug, on that rock, um, right in that eddy. And yeah, they, they're ambush predators, no different than kind of snook are in the ocean. They tuck themselves away and are very opportunistic when they see something, see something come by. Mm-hmm. Now I associate smallmouth bass uh, mostly with moving water and generally with like a like a gravel bottom, um, but mm-hmm. I also have a limited uh, scope of experience with them. Like I, I've fished them in a handful of rivers. Um, is that like generally the case for them, or do you find them much in kind of the slower moving parts of the river, muddier bottoms, weedier areas? Is it? Do you notice a kind of a difference where they're hanging out? Uh, absolutely, um, and they'll. I think more than anything they're always looking for that vantage point, right? You know, somewhere there were, where they're not seen, they're not threatened, um, and then they come out from under a log out of nowhere and blast a fly. Um, but what the real cool thing is, is that we see them look so different, um, predicated on age, what they've been eating, and the subsurface that they're camouflaging themselves to. Okay, so tell me more. Is it like the coloration you mean? Absolutely. You know, you may have one that's just, you know, maybe has a super sandy or murky bottom and they're bright green. And, you know, you may see them on a, you know, more rocky bottom with a lot of striations um, to kind of blend themselves in. They're they're very chameleon-like um, in that manner. 
And uh, how about kind of a yearly cycle for smallmouth? And what this might transition us kind of toward more of the fishing side of it. But um, throughout the year, I like to go through, you know, starting in whatever season you think is best. Some people uh, really prefer to start in one particular season for whatever reason. But um, throughout the year, how, how is the fishing going to change and how are the fish going to be behaving at uh, kind of the four different seasons of the year? Yeah, the way I, um, kind of early spring, um, they do do their spawning. Um, but because we cover such a, it's not like a, a lake where everything seems to happen almost on a calendar. Um, it happens for different reasons at different times. And we definitely try to avoid beds in the spring, um, mating fish, because we definitely want this waterway that's so amazing to continue to thrive. Um, that we don't want to be pulling fish off of their beds. Um, but having said that, I think definitely um, spring and fall, they tend to be a little bit deeper, um, conserving energy. Um, in the spring, we have a tendency to use much smaller flies that get down deep with sink tips and do something akin to that in the fall where you would use a sink tip, but with a much larger fly, because again, they're opportunistic. They know the winter's coming and they strapped on their feed bags looking for that last big snack. And then summertime, it's just game on with those fish. Um, they're everywhere. I mean, from fast moving water to slack water to sitting in nothing you know, just on a small undercut on somebody's bank, um, you know, and, and that's why I think casting such an important tool to have within your bag. Just to hit the exact spot you're trying to get to. Exactly. You know, I always say cast with purpose and cast fearlessly, because I, I think a lot of people fall into that, um, uh, pattern of they're like, oh, I'm with a guide. I don't want to lose their fly. I don't want to embarrass myself and hang it 40 feet up in a tree. Um, and I'm like, no, we go get it. You know, it's mm -hmm. not a big deal. Yeah. I think I only have one rule on the boat and it's, you're not allowed to say, I'm sorry. You know, if you're casting fearlessly, you're going to put some on the rocks and you're going to put some in the trees. Um, but it's also going to be that type of fearless casting uh, that allows you to make the shots that are required. I might need to um, adopt that mantra for myself when I go out, just cast fearlessly and don't care if it gets stuck in stuff because, <laughs> I, you know, it's it's hard because you, you want to get the fly exactly where you're trying to get it, but when you're, sometimes the risk versus reward doesn't seem worth it, <laughs> you know, when there's, yeah. when there's so much stuff there. Um, but that also might depend on what you're fishing for. Can, can you find more fish around that aren't in that one spot. But I like that, that kind of just like do it. You can always go get the fly, especially if you're waiting like small trout streams, like I am most of the oh, time. Like, yeah. why do I care that much if I have to bust in there and grab Walk it? Walk across <laughs> and go get your flies, <laughs> right. you know, it's not a big deal. You go find some new water, you know, and um, the Milwaukee River is uh, a substantially long, long river. We have a lot of sections that we're able to fish and, um, I'm never worried, uh, you know, it definitely stings when you're like, we've caught a lot of big fish in this section and now we just blew it up. Yeah. Um, 
but there's going to be a section a hundred feet down the river that's equally as good and going to hold just as high quality of a fish. I actually feel that way personally about smallmouth. The river I grew up fishing was a smallmouth fishery primarily. There were walleyes in there too. Um, but I remember I would get bummed if I you know, blew up a spot. I didn't catch a fish in a spot that I had historically thought was good. But then I'd always realize that like you said, 100 feet downstream, there's another spot that I think of as being just as amazing. Like I, I realized that the river is basically just a, a chain of spots that I, in my mind, think of as being like really productive spots because I've caught either a big fish there or a lot of fish there. And so it's like really easy to get really excited again, almost like a dog looking at a squirrel where you're like, oh, no, we're going to the sex spot. Don't worry about it. You know, you, you That's are right. excited the whole time. And I think one of the biggest things is people can get um, I mean, definitely there's go-to spots where there's large holes or something like that, um, where, or, you know, big slack eddies where they're conserving energy and they have a lot of food. Um, but those spots change with levels. I mean, we're not fishing a tailwater. I mean, one of the, the biggest challenges of what we do is that, yeah, for sure, you know, a spot might have been producing super well for a couple weeks, but the water level raises and it's, yeah, you can anchor up all day and not catch a thing. You know, it's a very, uh, a very fluid thing. I remember two years ago um, when I was kind of out on my own doing this, uh, we had a very dry summer. So I got to see all my favorite stretches at their lowest possible water level. So I know where the logs are, are downed and, you know, I know where the rocks that won't move and the islands that won't move are. Um, and yeah, it's, it's something that as, as a guide, you're constantly thinking around the problem, you know, and, uh, I carry a lot of rods on the boat for that reason, you know, that, you know, Hey, this is going to be best with, you know, a floating line with this fly on it, you know, a bait fish pattern is going to do best here, but we're going to have to get a sculpin pattern over here with a sink tip line because it's much, much deeper. And one of the kind of things I've always spoken about is meeting these fish where they're at. Um, I think that, of course, you can go out with a, you know, shooting line and have it be floating and you're going to have success. But it's not really until you start putting together all the pieces of the puzzle um, that, you know, today we've got to use a Versa leader or today we've got to use a sink tip line. Um, so, yeah, it, it's that's what makes it really fun for me um, is going like, all right, we made this change and boom, they're there. And uh, that that's that's a lot of fun. And uh, yeah. I don't know. I may seem pretty mellow, but I get very excited <laughs> when people catch fish. <laughs> I'm the loudest, loudest one out there. 
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Tell me more about that thought process of, you know, you're approaching um, the river for the day. And I know you know this river really well. So you probably have things that you know, like, is your go-to. But for someone who is maybe just getting into smallmouth fishing or fishing a new river for them, um, walk me through your th- thought process of picking a fly and maybe like a line and leader setup um, based on like what you're seeing that day, water levels, the type of structure you're fishing, the time of year it is like, you know, how would someone go about deciding, okay, my, the best chance for catching a smallie right now is for me to use, you know, so-and-so setup. Like how, how would you go through that thought process? Yeah. And I, I, I think that, um, you know, I see a lot of the trout guys, they're constantly switching out flies. And oftentimes I feel as if pattern is almost irrelevant okay. in a way. Um, it's depth and movement. You know, that's really what they're, I, I feel as if they're responding to the most. Okay. Um, so I think a lot of people will switch, you know, maybe a neutrally buoyant fly for a neutrally buoyant fly when they're not having success. Well, that's the first mistake, you know, like you switch a neutrally buoyant fly to a subsurface fly or a popper or something else that's varying the depth at which you're fishing. Um, And yeah, you've got to meet these fish where they are because they're very opportunistic um, when it comes to eating the fly. They're very friendly to the fly. And um, having said that, you still have to meet them where they are, you know? I mean, if, if the water's roaring at 800 to 1,000 CFS, you've got to be using sink tip lines, um, you know, to get that fly down enough to meet these fish where they are. Um, and just, you know, uh, on the counter side of that, when the water gets low, um, yeah, I, I think, and so much of it has just come from experimentation in that first couple of years that I, I took off just to just to fish and, and get to know these, um, get to know these local waters. So how often are you using a, a sink tip versus a, a floating line? Um, almost all summer we're using floating lines. Okay. Exclusively. Um, it's really um, early season and particularly the fall um, when you're using, um, you know, maybe something like really small Bufords or something deer hair, very neutrally buoyant that you need to get down to push water, really grab their attention. Um, and yeah, 
and again, I think depth and size of fly are a good reason to change flies. But I think it, it's not like your trout box where, you know, you've got to have every fly under the sun. Um, what they eat here is really consistent. And um, if you kind of stay within that realm of bait fish, sculpin, and crayfish, um, you also have to consider that all of them swim at different levels. Um, you know, most of your sculpin and crayfish are going to be very close to the bottom. They're going to have lead eyes um, or some type of weight to them. Um, and then your more neutrally buoyant flies are kind of your bait fish pattern because if you sit on an island for a few hours um, and just watch bait fish, they're all pretty close to the surface. Yeah. And um, so, and then eh, poppers, they're just fun because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it's uh, when, when I do get the opportunity to trout fish, I really love fishing dry flies, you know, because it's such a, it's a timing thing. It's a presentation thing. Um, and I really appreciate that about trout fishing. Um, and poppers are a little bit like that, you know, you trout set too early and you just, you move that thing 14 feet from that fish and it's out of the game, right? you know? And, um, yeah. And I, I would say that was one of the big, um, learning curves is that strip set, you know? Mm -hmm of utilizing a strip set because if you think about taking that left hand and strip setting you're moving that fly a foot and a half two feet from that fish if it doesn't eat you know if it just nips at the tail you're still in the game but if you trout set and raise a nine foot rod you know you're ostensibly moving that that fly 15 feet away from that fish and it lost interest, yeah. you know, so, and that, and that's definitely one of the things that, uh, you know, is one of those critical learning curves, you know, because I think a lot of people associate um, fly fishing with trout, you know, and it's this trout set, raise the rod, yeah. get all the slack out of the line. Um, and there's a time and place for that um, in bass fishing, but... I think that a solid strip set is much more effective as far as hookup ratio goes. Now, how are you uh, like? How are you working the fly when it's in the water? Because my experience mm. with smallmouth bass has primarily been unconventional gear, and my yeah. experience with that would be, you know, casting out a lure, reeling it back in, and the, the small bass would basically hook themselves at that point. Um, yeah. And how, like, does that happen very often on a fly rod? And if so, does it depend on whether you're, like, pretty aggressively stripping that fly back in? And, you know, it, a, a stripping a fly back in is essentially strip setting over and over and over again. So That's I feel right. like if, it, if you timed it right, it would basically hook the fish. But, like, how often do fish kind of hook themselves because of how you're working the fly? Or, or how else do you work flies that do require more of that deliberate strip set? Um. Yeah, I certainly don't want to steal anybody else's words, but uh, Kelly Gallup talked about um, thinking more about swimming that fly okay. and swimming it appropriate to what fly you're casting. Um, you know, 
uh, as opposed to just blindly strip, 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 yeah. you know, you know, that conventional, um, uh, fishing, you're right. You know, it's this, you know, you reel it back in and they, they, they either kind of go for it or they don't. Um, but again, I think I tend to use a little bit longer of a strip, um, when it comes to bait fish patterns and a little bit faster of a strip because, you know, while I'm re-rigging or sitting on an island, um, I'm watching them and watching what they do. Um, same thing with the sculpin and the crayfish, you know, a crayfish may be pop, pop, pause, pop, pop, pause. And I'm somebody that, um, you know, I think maybe even clients get frustrated with because they're like, wow, you know, you haven't switched flies at all. And I'm like, no, you, you change up everything before you get rid of that fly. You know, you change up the speed that which you're retrieving, the cadence at which you're retrieving that fly. And if you really think about utilizing that left hand as you're stripping for a right-handed uh, fly angler, um, if you think about it, as I'm swimming this bait fish or I'm swimming this crayfish, um, you're going to have a ton more success. Um, you know, if you're just burning a crayfish pattern on, on the top of the surface, they're going to be like, Oh, that's cute. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, <laughs> you know, um, and, uh, and generally, uh, you know, as far as your, your tackle goes, um, we're generally using seven and eight weights okay. and I even prefer a saltwater, um, eight weight, uh, because it does have a bit more backbone that allows you to cut through wind and make those more precise shots. Um, and I mean, these, these fish are no joke. I mean, they really will put a bend in a saltwater eight weight and, um, they'll have it buckled over, you know? Uh, one more question about um, the sink tip versus floating line. You mentioned you use floating lines throughout most of the summer, um, but you also talked about how it kind of you're going to cater that to what what you're fishing that day. Uh, you know, say you're fishing kind of a neutrally buoyant uh, bait fish pattern. Um, that seems like it would lend itself better to a floating line than something that you want to keep on the bottom the whole time. So, how how is it um, like both seasonally affected and fly pattern related? Like, are you kind of changing which pattern you're using based on the season? Or is there a different reason that you're using floating lines more in the summer and transitioning to a sink tip, um, like, later in the season? Yeah. Um, generally, in the summer, you're going to have lower water to begin with. Um, those fish are post-spawn, um, very active. They're looking to feed. Um, so I think floating lines are, are most appropriate. And I really recommend sink tips as opposed to full sinking lines because of control. You can mend a sink tip, you know, where its yeah. sinking section is 18 to 15 feet long. Um, you can still mend that and have control as to where you're swimming that fly. Um, and again, I, I, I'm just a firm believer in changing everything before you change the fly. And, um, but, and, and, and a lot of it has to do with just matching the water levels, you know, if we're fishing, you know, a very steep, steep drop off 
yeah, for sure. The fish are going to hold right on that edge and you've got to put it, you know, right on those rocks, let it drop. And then hopefully you get a chase. And that's one of the things that we do notice is that spring and fall, they bite immediately. They make that decision quickly. Whereas in summertime, they're just having fun. You know, they're, they're going, I'm going to chase this around and I'll (laughs) nip at it and I'm going to go back to where I was and cast again and try one more time, you know? So you're on a boat. So I assume that you're carrying multiple rods on every trip. What would you recommend for somebody who is a weight angler and is not looking to carry more than one rod? Like they're going out for the day. Like, is there kind of a, kind of how the nine foot five weight is the all around rod for trout? Like that's going to handle most things for trout. What is the equivalent of that for smallmouth fishing? If like a whole setup, they've got a like certain weight rod with a certain line on it. And we don't need to worry about fly because you've, you've kind of expressed that you don't think fly pattern matters as much. Um, and it sounds like there's like a, a handful of different patterns that people might choose from, but but gear wise, what what would you say is kind of the all around like you want one smallmouth setup for the day, and you're going to be on foot? What would you take for that? Um, I would really, uh, depending on where they are located geographically, if you get a lot of wind, I would um, lean more towards an eight weight, just because it does have a little bit more backbone. Um, and uh, but I think you know, primarily a a solid seven weight, um, oftentimes in a saltwater series um, of, you know, whether it be any of the uh, manufacturers, um, they'll have freshwater and saltwater. I I just prefer saltwater. It'll also carry a heavier line because a lot of these bass bug lines say for an eight weight are almost 280 grains. Um, and you need to have a stick that's not going to buckle, um, with something like that. And I generally, um, yeah, generally use anywhere between 12 and 10 pound, um, mono liters, tapered mono liters. Um, that can be a little bit shorter than your, you know, general nine foot leader that's kind of stock standard for trout fishing. I like them right around seven to eight feet and um, have played around with building my own leaders. And, but one of the advantages to a bass leader is its butt section. So where it connects um, loop to loop, um, that section is much, much thicker and more akin to an extension of your fly line, making it much easier to get a proper turnover um, on these larger flies that we we tend to use. And um, yeah, I mean, without a doubt, you can go out with a, you know, size four woolly bugger and just, you know, really beat up on, on bass. But I have found that some of, uh, the bigger fish that that I tend to target and like to target with a lot of the clients um, respond to a little bit bigger of a fly. So having a proper leader is, is really critical. I mean, almost, you know, to like a 40 pound butt section. Okay. You know, you want something, you know, stout that's going to turn over these larger flies. Now, what uh, what size flies would you recommend? Kind of, I'll, I'll give you two situations here for the person who wants to go out and catch 
a bunch of smallmouths. Like they, they don't care how big they are. They just want to go out and have a, a high fish number day. And then the person who kind of wants to weed out some of the smaller fish and kind of target those more trophy smallmouths, what rough like size ranges of flies do you tend to throw for each of those things? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it can really, it really can depend on, uh, you know, I, um, as I mentioned, you know, in the spring we tend to use smaller flies, but if somebody wanted to go out and just beat up on them, I mean, an inch and a half to two inch woolly bugger, yeah, you're going to go out and have success. You know, um, we tend to throw, you know, the three to four inch flies, um, that have a little bit more profile to them, push a little bit more water. Um, I've been playing a lot with, uh, some new patterns, uh, on the vice this winter that I'm really excited about trying out, um, that do exactly, do exactly that. Um, but yeah, it doesn't need to be a huge fly. You know, if you want to go out and bang away at, you know, a whole bunch of bass between eight and 12 inches. Yeah, man, just pick yourself up a bunch of woolly buggers, a couple in olive, couple in black, couple in white, you know, and you're going to be beyond set. Um, But, you know, I, I think I'm more likely to tie on in that case to weed out some of the smaller ones, not that they won't go after a big fly. I mean, it's remarkable. Um, I mean, I remember musky fishing and we had a 20 inch bass go after like a 12 inch Buford, you know, I mean, just this big musky fly and, uh, yeah, uh, they're, they're not afraid of, uh, bigger flies, but I think that that three to four inch length total is, is, um, what you'd be aiming for as far as, um, getting into those larger fish. Okay. And, uh, color wise, I, I know you mentioned kind of the olive black, that kind of, um, like kind of color palette, I guess, but are you, yeah. are you, um, choosing your color based on like the water quality or the weather or anything like that? Where, uh, do you have any recommendations on, on matching the color to the conditions you're fishing? Yeah. Um, I have a tendency to, uh, uh throw the bright stuff. Adam, when the sun is out and the water's a little clear, um, the retrieve is generally a little bit faster um, because they can really see that fly and you don't want to give them too much time to go, hey, man, that's not real. (laughs) Um, But having said that, when the water gets high and murky, I really do like olives, browns, sculpiny color um, and blacks because what they're looking for is profile. And as they're, um, with any of these, uh, predatory fish, they're looking up. They're very rarely looking down for food sources. Um, so having said that, yeah, um, on cloudy days, overcast days where the water may have rained two days before, and it's a little murky, um, yeah, I, I prefer bigger, darker colors because, and something that pushes water, you know, whether it be like a wool sculpin type head or a deer hair type head, um, that really moves water. Okay. 
Well, is there is there anything that you think um, we should have covered um, on smallmouths outside of like what I've asked? Just something that would be good for someone to know if they're going out and trying this for the first time that would be kind of like a good overall tip for them to take take home? Yeah, I, you know, um, I, I think the biggest thing is practicing your cast. Okay. Um, to be perfectly honest, I mean, one of the absolute best casters I know, and he's a guide that I use, John Lee. Uh, uh, his cat, uh, yeah, I'd give my left pinky toe to cast like he does, <laughs> you know. But having said that, he's also the guy that's just out practicing casting, you know. And it doesn't take much. You just want to make sure that you have a leader on the end of your fly line so you don't blow out your welded loop. Um, maybe a little piece of yarn so you can see how things are laying out. But it doesn't take, you know, and it doesn't mean that you're out there for an hour practicing casting. Um, it's something that, uh, yeah, that is just so critical that if you spend, you know, five, 10 minutes once or twice a week, just to keep that loop tight, it makes, ma- makes a world of difference, you know, because it is very much streamer fishing is very casting intensive. You know, it's not lobbing a nymph rig upstream and letting it, you know, mend and mend and mend and come downstream. Um, it's something where I tend not to get bored doing. <laughs> and I think maybe that was the big appeal of streamer fishing and bass fishing in general is that it's just so dynamic. There's a million things you can change, you know. As we spoke, you know, it, it can be that speed of retrieve, the cadence of retrieve, how long those strips are, and oftentimes what kind of movement you get on the pause, you know, because oftentimes they like when you pause and you've got a whole bunch of lead eye on there and it just turns, you know, straight down and they go, that's a wounded bait fish and bang, you know. It, it happens. But having said that, I've also done that with um, like foam headed flies on sink tip lines where on the pause, it actually raises. Oh, okay. You know, so I, I, I've just found that they're, they're very much into movement um, as opposed to going, hey, man, that looks exactly like a big right. fish. Good tie. <laughs> I think we've all learned that um, a lot of patterns don't actually look like much at all. Like, especially in the trout world, like you've got a lot of stuff that, you know, sometimes you feel like trout really are looking at that fly and saying, well, that's a, you know, such and such genus and species mayfly um, because sometimes they are that picky. And then a lot of times they're just not like, they don't care. It's purple. Like when was the last time you saw a purple mayfly, but they love it. <laughs> you know, there's, <laughs> there's some paradigons. <laughs> I mean, why does a paradigon right? work? Um, because it meets those fish where they are. It doesn't matter how silly it looks. And, um, you know, but, oh man, those will just, you'll beat up on fish with a, with a fly like that. But again, I think it goes back to, you know, think around the problem and, um, meet those fish where they are. Awesome. Well, um, where can people find you if they want to um, either reach out to you online or maybe book a trip with you or um, whatever? Where, where can they find you online? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, we have a website. Um, it is www.flyfishmke.com. That'll bring you to our website and you can get to know the guides that we have working for us and 
kind of the costs and programs that we run. Um, and uh, also on Instagram, um, Milwaukee, uh, <laughs> Milwaukee Fly Fishing, uh, Milwaukee River Fly Fishing, I'm sorry, all underscored okay. uh, between each uh, word. And um, you can find if you're if you really want to waste some time, you can uh, find me at uh, Tilted 3.0 um, at Instagram. I try to post as regularly as I can, but yeah, I'm kind of lazy with my own stuff. <laughs> now, is that uh, all fishing, or is it fishing, skiing, and everything else? All the other uh, forty hobbies oh, you do. Oh <laughs> yeah, you go back far enough, you'll see some some skiing and mountain biking and, uh, whatnot, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, the fly fishing things definitely grayed out a lot of other areas of my life and, uh, yeah, I love it for it. <laughs> Man, it'll do that, won't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, Joe, uh, thank you for, for coming on talking to me today. I gotta say you've, you've, um, like maybe missed small mouse. I don't get to fish for much out here in Colorado. I grew up in Pennsylvania yeah. where that's like the main thing that I fished for. And, um, just like thinking back on them, there's such a fun, fun species to catch. And I hope, um, if someone hasn't gotten a chance to fish for them before they go give it a try. Cause they really are just a ball. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, you, even with some of the diehard trout guys that we have had on the boats before they come out with a new appreciation for this warm water species, uh, the take is awesome. They fight like crazy. Um, yeah. And they're just good fun and you can go out and catch a bunch of them. If you, uh, give yourself a bit of an education beforehand. Well, hopefully this, this episode will provide that for somebody and, uh, inspire them to get out. Um, but once again, thank you. I, I had a great time talking to you and, um, hopefully you don't have too bad of a winter coming your way up there in Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, we, we, ironically, we have open water now. So I was out pike fishing today and, uh, yeah. Take it while you can. <laughs> it's, uh, take it while you can. Awesome. Well, I will, uh, I'll talk to you soon. And, uh, once again, thank you so much. All right, Katie. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. Uh, thank you all for listening. If you want to find all the other episodes as well as show notes, you can find those on fishuntamed.com. Um, you'll also find a contact link there if you want to reach out to me. And you can also find me on Instagram at fishuntamed. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can give it a follow on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. And if you'd like to leave a review, it would be greatly appreciated. Uh, but otherwise, thank you all again for listening. I'll be back here in two weeks with another episode. Take care, everybody.